Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. Lucas Hare? He's not there. But he'll be back next time. I'm Kerry Shale. And he's my guest, poet and broadcaster, Ian McMillan. Your breath is sweet. Your eyes are like two jewels in the sky. Your back is straight. Your hair is smooth on the pillow where you lie. But I don't sense affection, nor gratitude or love. Your loyalty is not to me, but to the stars above. One more cup of coffee for the road. One more cup of coffee for I go to the valley below. Ah, uh, <laughs> I love that, Ian. That, that was one of the uh, the songs of Dylan's that that it comes really easily. It seems to me it's it's so it's so beautiful and accessible. Why, but why did you choose those those words? I think to begin with, it's that chorus. One more cup of coffee for I go. Mm. One more cup of coffee for the road. Before I go to the valley below. And I remember listening to that as a young man. And for years I hadn't drunk tea or coffee because I thought it was an old man's thing. When I was a, when I was a lad, I drunk milky tea. Uh-huh. And then as I became a teenager, <laughs> I thought, no, tea, tea and coffee are for older people. And so when, we, when, I, went to, when I went to stay in a bed and breakfast, yeah. I wouldn't have tea or coffee, I'd have pop. I'd have fizzy pop. And somehow <laughs> coffee became this thing that hip young people like me would never drink. And then, as I started getting into poetry and into songwriters, I found that a lot of them were writing about coffee Hmm. and that somehow coffee became the thing. You would read these things about writers and they'd say we had, we we fueled up on endless coffee. And you'd say, oh, endless coffee. So I thought, right... I better start drinking coffee because I thought, all right, coffee's going to be the thing. <laughs> and then I, I, I drank it with milk and sh- It was horrible, milk and sugar. Then, <laughs> then I heard this song, One More Cup of Coffee, yeah. before I go on. And then you think, all right, the bit about more, for the road, but then to the valley below. And I remember saying to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, I said, I'm going to start drinking coffee. She went, really? I said, yes. And I would sit there with this cup of coffee, and I brought, a, this is pathetic, but I bought myself a little espresso cup. You know, mm. was, oh, and I'm yeah. going, one more cup of coffee before I go to the valley below. And then hearing that song, you think, all right, I like the idea that it's one more cup of coffee. I like the specifics of that. Mm. He's had a cup of coffee, and he's like me, he's rediscovered coffee as a great thing. But he's having one more. And I love that idea that he's got to go to some place where he's going to be tested. He's got to go somewhere. You read the you read the verse, mm. and there's a woman there, mm. and he's leaving the woman, and she's laid there, her back is straight, her hair reminded me of Leonard Cohen's Marianne, mm-hmm. you know, and laying there, and he's off, and he talks about her dad, her father, mm. who show him how to how to throw the blade, is it? And, and you think, well, what's that mean? Is he? This isn't facetious, but when I first read it, I thought. He was some kind of knife thrower in a circus. So that's mm. what he does. He throws mm. the knives in the circus. Now, to, but it reminded me of my father-in-law, who wasn't a knife thrower in a circus. He worked down a coal mine, mm. but he was a kind of forbidding figure. And somehow, me and the, the lad that I was, and my wife to be, and my father-in-law, all seemed to be encapsulated in that tiny lyric. Because to me, it's about it's about love. It's about the kind of the fear that you feel when you're in love. That, all right, the valley below, you're going, you're going on some kind of journey. And I remember reading that and hearing it sung and trying to sing it myself. And I do remember going to a, a singer's night at a folk club. And there was such a thing in the 70s 
and 60s and 70s and late 70s, the folk club, where you'd go along and somebody would sing a Bob Dylan song and somebody would read a poem mm. and somebody would sing their own song and somebody would sing a traditional song. And I heard somebody singing that song and actually murdering it, killing it. It was the worst version I've ever heard. And I thought, is this a good song? And that's what this song teaches me, that actually a great song like this can be sung by somebody who's singing it very badly mm. in an upstairs room in a pub mm. and it still survives. So that's why I often go back to this song and play it to myself. And when I play it, the 63-year-old me remembers that young lad that I was with a beard, you know, wearing flared trousers and just discovering coffee. And I think, yeah, and that's, that's what Bob Dylan does for me. I'm not an expert. I'm not a kind of completist or an encyclopedist. But what he does, every so often he kind of pops up, he bubbles up. And he goes, look, this is what writing is. This is what being alive is. Mm. This is what... And so that, that's, that's why I chose that song. Well, it's a perfect perfect choice. To me, it's mysterious and dark. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? You, 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 you see people who go, what he meant was this. The knife he's referring to is that knife. The hair is flat because of that. The back is straight because of that. And the same time I was discovering Dylan, I was discovering the other Dylan, Dylan Thomas. Mm. And as a, as a teenager and a young man, I was mad on Dylan Thomas. Mm. And what I liked about Dylan Thomas was I couldn't understand a word of it. I just, I'd read stuff like Alter Wise by Owl Light, this fantastic sonnet sequence. And you may as well read the phone book because it doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but it is so exhilarating, so exciting. It gets you viscerally. And the same thing happened with this. Mm. The, it was the, it was, what I like about Dylan is that he's like Dylan Thomas in that I think all great poets can rub vowels against consonants and make a kind of smoke come out of them. And I love the way he uses vowels. One more cup of coffee before I go. Those O's and those E's and those U's just going together to make a kind of music that, in the end, meaning doesn't matter. I don't want to analyse it. I don't want to make meanings out of it. But I want to just revel in the glory of the music there, I think. So are there any other songs that that bounced out at you, that jumped out at you for that same sort of reason, the way things rub against each other. I think when I remember listening on the radio as a young man to Lay, Lady, Lay. Lay, Lady, Lay, Lay across the big brass bed. Mm. My dad turning it off. What's that rubbish? He said. Can't we have some Andy Stewart? My dad was a big fan of the great Andy Stewart, Donald Wears Your Trousers. Right. But Lay, Lady, Lay, <laughs> Lay across my... I thought, wow... I didn't know what it meant. Big brass bed, brass, mm. going with the A of lady. Lay, lady, lay, lay. Mm. And I remember buying it as a single, mm. kind of in defiance to me dad, and playing it. Lay, lady, lay. And that, that thing, mm. and, and my dad's still going, that's rubbish, that's absolute rubbish, he's going, because he's going, what's he on about? Lay across my big brass bed. What's he talking about? Of course you're going to go to bed. Then he's going, he's, he's being very specific, my dad. He's going... <laughs> You don't lay across a bed, he's going, you don't lay across, you lay in a bed, you lay, you lay top to bottom. My dad was a very practical sailor from Scotland, and he was a very practical man, mm, he could fix mm, anything. Mm. So to him, lay across my big brass bed. And I couldn't say to him, because I wasn't clever enough at the time, look, Dad, what I like here is the lay and the lady and the brass, but also the brass, the two S's of brass going with the across. If he'd sung lay, uh, lay along my big brass bed, that wouldn't work, but mm, lay across mm. my big brass bed just somehow sets off these ripples in the listening mind. And there's something, well, it's sexy, isn't it? You're laying across the bed. You're not laying in, you're kind of, you're across the bed. That's kind of sexy, which I didn't kind of realise at the time. But it's just, it just the vowels and the consonants. So 
And then I would, because it's such an earworm, mm. I would end up singing that bit again as a young man. And you're there, and my dad's washing up, and I'm drying on. Will you stop singing? Look, and then he's going, look, look, he's going, this is all. I wish I was making this up, Kerry, but I'm not. We're washing up, and my dad's got a penny on in the Macmillan Tartan, Macmillan Tartan penny, and I've got a penny on. And we both, and my dad's washing up, and I'm going, and he's going, look, and he's going, look, lay across my big brass bed. He was obsessed by that line. Lay across my big brass and. He would put, he'd put a plate on the sideboard, draining board, and he'd get a fork. And he'd go, look, the, the, you'd lay on a bed, and he's going out with a fork. He'd give you fork. a diagram. Give a diagram. Look, you can't lay across a bed. And my mother's going, will you two just wash up? And, and he was, my dad was a very, very gentle man. He was such a gentleman, and he loved poetry. He loved Robbie Burns, and he loved, he loved no, Andy Stewart, and he loved, and, and his, his auntie was a poet. His auntie was a Victorian rhyming balladeer. And so I would say things to him like, Dad, can't you see that this is actually poetry? And it was interesting that I'm not a practical man at all, and it was interesting for me with this song to see my dad's practicality bumping against that. You've got to imagine me as an, as an adolescent. So not only... I'm a bit like the lad in The Simpsons who said, do you want fries with that? So I'm going, look, Dad, think about this. you got to imagine this scene. Oh, dear. So I, I did uh, uh, come across um, a thing that you, a poem that you wrote the other, the other day. I was Spotifying, and uh, uh, it was that Sunday morning, which mm-hmm. it seems to be a, a poem that you wrote that was set to music uh, about discovering Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands uh, coming out of the radio. Presumably uh, it was before... Uh, Lay Lady Lay. It would have been, and I think I think I just hit on that phrase. I did, so many things came out of the radio. Mm. We had the radio on all the time. And so you'd remember sort of snatches of things. And what I seem to remember is that it came out of the radio, and I think I think I remember that somebody chose it on Desert Island Discs. Mm. I'm sure that's the case. And yes, again, it, it was, would have been unusual to come out of, say, let's say if it was Radio Four. Yeah, you don't usually we, hear, we but, usually had Radio I, Four. I remember that the poem had it was a sum, it was a sunny morning. Yeah, and it did seem to come out of nowhere, but it yeah. it, it seemed that it sort of again hit you in that sort of way. Does it that, did, do and, and it, again, it's that phrase, the sad-eyed lady of the lowlands. I remember the announcer announcing the, the title of the song, and again, it links to me dad because he was from the lowlands of Scotland, hmm. and it links to that thing about. The vowels and the consonants. Mm. You know, sad-eyed lady of the lowlands. Mm. Lowlands is just a great word anyway. Yeah. And the way that the of leans into it. So that, and and then I was moved to write a poem about it. I remember that. But I haven't written many poems about Dylan because it would always feel like a bit of an imposition. You'd say, well, it's a bit of an homage. But actually, you'd be saying, well, you know, why why write a poem about this this fantastic poet? So I do remember vaguely writing the Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands poem, but I can't remember it in any detail. Perhaps I should have written about Lay, Lady, Lay. That would have been better. Now that we're talking, I'm mm. going to go away and write a poem about my dad and me and him washing up and him putting the phone oh, yeah, that's, across the plate. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's dear. Great. I mean, do you remember any other parts of your life that maybe where Dylan songs sort of jumped out at you? Yes, I remember Johnny's in the Basement, that one. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was a while I'd, I'd heard it, but then I remember when I went to college, so I went to North Staffordshire Polytechnic, 
and I did modern studies, and it was English history, politics and sociology, and this was in 1974. And so things, the world felt that things were happening in the world. A lot mm. of my lecturers were new left people who'd been at the barricades in Paris or said they had. You know, me and my mate, Dave Thorpe, would sit in his rooms and play music and in that late teenage way think that actually what this music is doing is explaining the world to us much more than anything ever could. Mm. So, one of the tracks we listened to wasn't a Dylan track, but it was Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. Oh, yeah. We'd play that and we'd, we'd sit there pretentiously and go, do you know, I think that saxophone solo actually tells you more about the world than all these lectures, and we do that. But then, my mate John Morris, he burst in, and he got this track, Johnny's in the Bit, and, all, and he played it to us. Mm. And we thought, I'd heard it before, but just in that context, mm. you're thinking, blimey, what an amazing thing. Partly because of the rhythm of the words and the mm. way that it feels like kind of proto-rap and the way that you imagine that at that time, that kind of thing was beginning to happen. And I remember him, and think about my mate John Morris, he still looks like a kind of mid-period Bob Dylan. He's got the hair and he looks, it was almost in, in a way as though Bob Dylan had burst into the room. And we're listening to this song. And then I saw the, the video where he's doing the thing. Yeah, with the, yeah. and, and that you think, gosh, it, it's hard to, from the distance of all these years, it's hard to remember and to articulate what an amazing thing that was to see him doing that with the pages, just getting the pages with the word, just throwing them away. And as a young man, you think, goodness gracious me, that is astonishing. What is he doing? What, what, he's doing that, he's got the words on there, and he's throwing them away. And when I say it like this, it just sounds so commonplace because we're so used to it being an advertising trope and a mm, kind of artistic yeah, trope. Mm. But when you see that, me and Dave Thorpe, we, 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 we must, he must have been on the telly, me and Dave Thorpe had John Morris sitting there looking at it and kind of then looking at each, each other and saying, why don't we go to the next seminar with Ian, I forgot the second, his second name, our lecturer, and do that, and do that, and write the things, and do that. And we said, let's do it, let's do it. And I, to my eternal shame... Did you do it? No, we ah. chickened out. We, we met outside, me and Dave Thorpe, John Morris. We met there, we've got, we've got all, the, all the points we're going to make, we're going to go, right, we're going to go in, and we're going to, right now, we're going to do that, mm -hmm. we're going to do the thing, because it felt so revolutionary. You know, you have to remember at that time, you know this, when you're a young man, all these things whirl around in your head. You've, you've, you've discovered surrealism. You've heard about dadaism. You've got sesinapasm peep in your head. And you're thinking, goodness me, the world is so exciting. Mm. And, and you can do this. Punk was round the corner. Punk was waiting for us. We, we, we had a lot of pub rock at our discos. You know, we played people like Ducks Deluxe and people like that who were just on the edge of pub rock, and we think that everything is kind of falling apart. So we thought, right, we're going to go. And we got some A4 sheets of paper, and we're out to the thing. And there were, there were some sensible students going, what are you going to do? You dope, you said, daft. And we went, and we never did it. And to my eternal shame, I wish that we had, because I think Ian Watson, that was his name, he would have liked, he would have, he wouldn't have minded because mm. he, he would have seen what we were doing. So yes, but I you would have that. had to rehearse the hell out of it. We wouldn't. That was part of the thing because we we weren't good at rehearsing. You're right, we would. I mean, so Dylan. I think thinking about it, you know, what he was doing physically, just mm. with his fingers, yes, yes, was incredibly deft. Yes, I mean, it, it probably, you know, being a brilliant 
um, finger-picking guitarist mm. probably helped yes. because actually it's I mean there's there's an outtake of him screwing it up but yes. I don't I don't think he did it many times really? would, I think mm. that might have only been the second take uh, but but yeah just just the way he drops it perfectly like yes, you think he oh he's almost behind the beat there yes. but he's then he's no he's caught yeah. up and it's just and it goes on and on it and does, on and uh, on and on and on and on you it's, know it's it's just he's He's so incredible at so many things. And you wish that... I, I wish we'd done it. And, and what that showed me was that actually the words and the music are there, but also there's that thing where you can, you can play with those words. You can, you can do things visually with those words. You can, I'm, t- I'm doing it now. You can tear mm. the, the words off and see the next words coming up. And it's such... When you think about it, it's such a simple thing. Mm. What a simple thing to think I'm going to do. Maybe people have done it before, I don't know, but you think, God, that that just... It, it makes you concentrate on each phrase. It makes you think about each phrase where it sits on the page, where it lands on the ear, and then where it floats to the floor. So that that was one that that, that stays in me. And, and course, he also misspelled some of the words. Yes, or whoever did. did them. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which is which is great too because it makes it it makes it funny. I think mm. his humor is is often uh, mm. you know so underrated. That's I mean true, that's a very funny song. So that it is. But yeah. Did, so did he influence you then as a as a poet? Do you think subconsciously or I think subconsciously subconsciously he must have done because I was going through this uh, Dylan Thomas phase. But then I, what I thought, well, what's great about Bob Dylan is that he's a great phrase maker. I think what Dylan Thomas is, is a great kind of, he makes fog and he makes beautiful mist that you can't mm. see your way through. Mm. I think with Bob Dylan, you know, blowing in the wind, what a great phrase. Mm. How, many, how, many, and how many roads can a man walk down? Just, just phrases, phrases that he makes, lay, lay, delay. Phrases, and I've thought about that a lot since. And maybe the basis of poetry is actually being a good phrase maker. I was thinking about that. I was talking to somebody about that, and we kind of disagreed to start with. I said, "Is the basis of being a poet being somebody who makes a phrase, who can make a new phrase, who can mint a phrase, as mm. though that's the first time you've ever heard it? Lay, lady, lay, lay across my big brass bed. That's the first time you've ever heard it." And it's encapsulating a, a moment, and it's encapsulating a feeling. And after that, that phrase is there in the air, and it's in the universe. And so then that phrase is made. And so you've made this phrase. So I think he influenced me in that way. The idea that somehow what a poet can be is a maker of phrases. And, and a poet can be somebody who can try and encapsulate something. And also, he, I like the fact, like with One More Cup of Coffee that I didn't quite know what was going on, and I was quite pleased with that. I didn't want to understand what was going on. I've always, I've often said that for me, poetry is not a Rubik cubes. You don't go click, 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 wait a minute, I understand it, it's about that. Mm. I like the fact that I can't fathom it. I like the fact that what I like is the rhythm of the words, the music of the words, the way that the words can work, a kind of alchemy on you, so they're just there on the page... But they stick with you. They stay with you. A phrase like lay, lady, lay. I can remember that incident in the kitchen. The, that phrase stays with you. I find myself whistling it and singing it. And that just means that he's invented this thing. Mm. And then you think, well, would it have worked if it didn't have the music? Would it have worked if it was just him going lay, lady, lay? I mean, say it better than that. But would it have worked as... It's almost like a Roger McGough poem. You can imagine Roger McGough saying it, lay, 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 across my big breastbed. You can mm. imagine that. You think, well, would it have worked as that? 
And maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it, it does need the song. It needs the music. And then you enter into that area, uh, our, poets, our poems, song lyrics, our song lyrics, exactly. poems. And I can never fathom that one. I remember talking to Lib- Labby Sifri about it because he, he gave up writing songs and started writing poems. Yeah. And I remember doing a gig with him once and people all turned up to hear the songs. And he said, I'm just going to read you these poems. And they're going, can we have a song, Labby? He's going, no, just the poems, just the poems. And then at the end, he'd read all these poems and somebody said, why have you stopped writing songs and started writing poems? He said, because with a song, you always have to go back to the chorus. <laughs> and that's what he didn't want to do. He wanted to write a thing that was kind of liberated. And of course, you don't have to write a song. No, chorus, because but... Dylan dispensed with chorus. Yeah, I he mean, he, he, he rarely used his chorus. But that was Labby Sifri's thing. Mm. That he, and, that, and that was one difference for him. And so I'm, I'm always, I'm engaged by that. I write, I write song lyrics myself and me. My songwriting partner will say, this isn't a lyric, it's a poem. And I'll go, yeah. all right, and I'll read it to him and say, oh, it's still a poem, still a poem. You need, to, you need to be pithier, you need to be more concise, you need to... That line, line three, has got to have the same number of syllables and stresses as line one. And I think, well, Bob Dylan didn't do that, actually. No. <laughs> he would have, his, his idea of syllables was quite elastic and quite... Mm. So, so maybe with Dylan... Poetry and song do come together. Poetry and song lyrics do come together, I think. Yeah, well, you've, you've solved, we've, we've negotiated that question a lot on this, <laughs> on this podcast. In fact, the very first one, we had David Hepworth on, and mm-hmm. he said, no, Dylan is a songwriter, he's not a poet. Mm. He, he uh, contended that he didn't deserve the Nobel Prize because that was for literature, and what he does is brilliant, but it's not literature. But yeah. I think you've just come down on the other side, and I, I, I tend to agree with that. I was so excited when he got the Nobel Prize for Literature. I was really excited because, to start with, he deserved it. And then you think, then it starts people going, well, what's, that's not literature. You go, of course it is. It is. It really is literature. It'll, it'll, it'll last for a long time. I think one test of it is that it lasts for a long time. Although, uh, I remember making a series once on radio about forgotten Nobel Prize winners. Okay. And there are quite a few that we've lost. Uh, there's one's called Franz Emil Silanpa. Well, you mean for literature? Yeah. He's gone. Yep, he's gone. <laughs> yes. He was, uh, I think he was, I think he was Icelandic. There's so many of them. And I remember sure. interviewing an expert on Cillan, I think it was called Cillan, but I might be making this bit up, but he was called something like that. And I remember saying to the ac- academic, so now uh, the revival of this man starts now. And he went, I don't think it <laughs> And so, and, and so, you know, he's a hostage to fortune getting the Nobel Prize. Mm. But I was so excited that he got it because I think the definition of somebody who wins the Nobel Prize is that their, their work encapsulates a time but also it's there forever. You know, I was a big fan of people like John Steinbeck, mm. and he won the Nobel Prize, I think, mm. in 1968. And you think, well, something like The Grapes of Wrath will last forever. Mm. And I think some of Dylan's things will last forever. So I was, I was very excited about that. And, and I think what it helps you to do is open up the idea of what literature can be. So literature can be poetry, and it can be a novel. And, of course, I, I've read uh, Dylan's Tarantula, that novel you that have. I have. Well, when I say read it, all right, I've not read it. I've skimmed <laughs> through few, it. Yeah, yeah. I've, what, what happened was I read, there was a, a collection of Paul Simon's lyrics oh, yeah. uh, uh, in, um, in sheet music form, and at the back of it, there was a short story he'd written. And I thought, hmm. oh, that's interesting. So I read this short story, and it was, in, it was not bad. It was a bit, I'm a big fan of John Cheever. It was uh-huh. a bit John Cheeverish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought, all right, that's interesting. So a songwriter can write fiction. And then somebody bought me Tarantula uh, as a present. 
So I thought, all right, I'll read it. But you're right, he found me out, Kerry. I didn't actually read it. I kind of skipped read it. I went, and I kind of, it was one of those things you wanted to be seen to be reading. So you're reading it on the bus. You're like, I've got a tarantula. <laughs> and then people will go, you're not reading that. And, and maybe, maybe it proves, maybe it says that um, you can only work in one form. What I'd love, because that's the only novel he's written, isn't it? Yes, well, he called it a novel. Yeah. Is it an, I don't, you know, does it? I'd love to see him have another go. I would love that. I'd love to go and say, look, Bob, just have a go at writing another well, novel. Well, some people say that his memoir is yes. pretty much a novel. Yes, that's true. It'd be uh, nice to see him have a go at writing something that had... Because he's good at creating characters, I think, in his songs that are partly him and partly not. And he's good at writing about other people. I know he's always there. Well, do you know uh, Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, which is yeah. it, the poem, which yes. seems to be the only proper poem that yes, he's actually true. written, uh, which is which has got a great beat to it, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's very... It's very moving. It, mm. It's sort of like the young Bob when he was really not afraid to mm. to be overtly sort of moving. He yeah. works in much more subtle ways now, I guess. But, so I wonder if, uh, given that example, I wonder if he could just sit down and write a novel. Maybe he's not, he's not got that kind of mind. Maybe not. No. he don't, Well, of course, he's <clears> been <throat> painting and he's been ironworking mm-hmm. and he's been working yes. in all sorts of other you yeah. know, surfaces. But as he, have you been following him as, as he's been getting older? I'm wondering how you, what you make of the aging process and Bob and Bob's work as he... As to be he honest, I, 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 I've not been following him much as he gets older. I've been following the... Well, I'll tell you what I've been following. I've been following the, the image of him and the kind of longevity of him. And when he won the Nobel Prize, I was excited for him. But I haven't been following the newer work. I think partly because I think I might be disappointed by it. It's like when you go somewhere for the first time, you don't want to go back. Mm. You know, the first time you ever go to Leamington Spa, you think, what a nice place, Leamington Spa. I like Leamington Spa. Then you think, all right, here I am, I'm back in Leamington Spa. It's not the place I thought it was. Mm. I like Leamington Spa. Don't look back. Don't look back, exactly. And and so I think it's it's because I associate in my head and in my heart and in in my soul... I associate Bob with the younger me and the younger Bob. And I like the fact that he... What I do like is that he carries on creating as he gets older. You know, I like that. I think that is good. He carries on reinventing. He carries on doing new things. And that gives you hope that you're going to carry on doing that. I'm a lot younger than him. I'm only 63. But you think, all right, that's good. Mm. That gives you hope that you'll carry on. But... I do remember that odd phrase. That odd phase. I think I seemed. To, I think I tended to lose contact with him when he he became a Christian. Yeah, yeah. That's when a lot of people. That lost. was a funny yeah, thing. Yeah. Because I, I was brought up in the church, uh, and I went to the Sunday school, and I went to the the youth club, the church youth club, and then he kind of rebelled against that, and then I remember Bob Dylan becoming a Christian, and me being a bit disappointed by that, and my brother, who was a big Christian and a lay preacher, mm-hmm. and who looks and sounds just like me, except that he's bald. So if you imagine the two of us in this room, I would describe <laughs> it as like a novelty cruet set. And we're sitting there, and he said, I see your... your I, said, I, said, I said to me, so and you, he said, I see your mate, your mate, he always Bob. referred to as my mate, your mate Bob, he says, I see he's become a Christian. And I, I, I didn't know at the time, I said, has he? Mm. He said, yeah. He said, how about that then, he said. He says he's become a Christian, he's turned to Jesus. And I, then, I went, ah... Oh. And I remember him saying, how's your relationship with the Lord these days? And I said, it's a bit shaky, John, to be honest with you. And that was a time when I, I kind of, mm. I thought, well, they've even got Bob. You know, and I, and I, it, it was a funny thing, that. And then I, I know that it lapsed and all that. I remember at the same time reading in a magazine that Eric 
Clapton had become a Christian. I don't think that... And it was. I remember it was in some kind of Christian magazine and it said, Mm. at this moment, Eric, backstage, uh, took on Christ. And I thought, blimey, they're falling like nine people. What's (laughs) happening? What's happening, John? It is slightly different with Bob, though, uh, because Bob, you know, was bar mitzvahed. So the the Christian church Mm -hmm. was always the the thing on the other side of town, the other side of the road. It was an exotic thing. Yes, I think it was for him. It wasn't like going back to the church. So, you know, although I think he did very briefly go back to Judaism, Mm -hmm. always playing around with it. There was a picture of him at the Wailing Wall. Yes, there was. I think that was before he sort of took Christ into yeah. his heart. What was the They did an album, didn't he, that was straight after he got converted, I think. Yes. Uh, that was, and that was full of songs about Christianity. Yes. Well, he did three totally. There was one called Saved and you know, there was uh, Slow Train Coming. And, Slow Train. You know, and, and there, you know, he, he became very shouty um, mm-hmm. uh, about it mm. and, uh, and lost a lot of people, including me. I'd sort of followed Bob the whole time. Yeah. And then it was, a, I, I, you had to wait for the word on the street <laughs> to say, you know, I think he's past it's that back. now. I think we can put our, <laughs> dip our toes back into the world Maybe of Bob. Maybe I should, you know, I mean... Uh, I should. I, oh, it's I, worth. I mean, I would really recommend something like uh, if you you know, want to pick up a great album, mm-hmm. say Love and Theft, right. which is generally regarded as possibly his best album of of the sort of post Christian mm-hmm. period. Well, there's a number of them that are yes. regarded, but I love Love and Theft. And uh, as a matter of fact, I see what you think of this. This is just a, a few lines from one of the songs on Love and Theft. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about growing old, the old men round here. Sometimes they get on bad terms with the younger men. But old, young, age don't carry weight. It doesn't matter in the end. That's a great line, isn't it? Age don't carry weight. That's, again, what we talked about earlier, that idea of him being a great phrase maker, mm. isn't it? Because what he does is, he, a phrase like that, age don't carry weight, as soon as you said that, I've not heard that before, you think, well, I've heard that before. That's, that's, the, that's the magic of a writer like him. As soon as he says it, mm. you think, well, I knew that. Age don't carry weight. It sounds like these old men sitting in a room talking it sounds like something that he may have heard he may have overheard or he may have invented it but again as soon as you said it is don't carry weight there it is you see those four words nice play for vowels and consonants again but mm. just that thing where he he newly mints language that then it feels like it's been in your pocket for ages doesn't it he goes look this mm. is a new phrase you think well that's not a new phrase that's a phrase i've heard before that's a phrase i knew before that's the thing the old men said and they think Age don't carry weight. That would not that would not work in the formal. Age does not carry weight. Mm. Would sound worse, wouldn't it? Mm. it? It might work a bit, but age don't carry weight. Yeah, that's the American. That's the across the Atlantic way of saying it. A Yorkshireman like me would say age don't carry weight, but that that works so much better. Age don't, and that that's the other thing. It was always good at, wasn't it? Was raising the vernacular. You know, saying look, this that's why it's great that he wins the Nobel Prize because his songs. You know, one more cup of coffee before I go to the valley below. Mm. One more cup of coffee for the road. You know, before I go, as it, and it says in the lyrics, it, apostrophe F-O-R-E. Mm. It's not mm. one more mm. cup of coffee before I go. It's mm. one more cup of coffee before I go. Partly that's there to fit the tune, maybe, but it's that idea of saying, like John Lennon did, you know, saying, look, the vernacular, the way you speak is can be poetry. The way you talk, mm. the way that... Tony Addison, the great Leeds mm. poet, said... Mm. We're the one, i.e. people who talk like me, we're the one Shakespeare gives the comedy parts to, as though the way that we speak can't be loving, profound, intellectual and kind of transcendent. And what Mm. Dylan says to me is, look, you can. The way you speak 
can be poetry. The way I speak, i.e. the way Dylan speaks, is poetry. Just turn it up a notch, just move the slide on a bit, just isolate the phrase a bit mm. in the line, and what you said, what you overheard, what you manipulated a little bit, becomes poetry. That's why I was so pleased when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. There was that bit where they thought he might not turn up, wasn't he? What, well, he didn't there? turn up for That's ages. Right, he didn't turn up then. And in fact, he didn't, you know, Patty Smith sort of mm. gave his That's proper right, acceptance yeah, speech yeah. and then he wrote... Uh, a very uh, beautiful uh, acceptance. Why didn't Why didn't he turn up? Oh, he, just because he's been. He was on tour, and right. you know, he didn't expect the the prize. And yes. I think you know, it seems to me that he accepted it in in a very Dylan esque yeah. sort of way. Hmm. Because if he really made a big deal out of it, I mean, Patty Smith was so scared she forgot the lyrics of the song that, that right. she was singing. And uh, but he didn't have to go through all that. I mm. mean, I, I can, occasionally he does go through that sort of stuff. In yeah. fact, it reminds me, you know, the, the, the song. Um, a Day of the Locusts, which mm. is about him getting his honorary degree. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you about that because, of course, that refers to the Black Hills of Dakota, mm-hmm. which was a, a song that you chose for your Desert Island Yes, discs. it was, yeah. And it did make me also think that, of course, Bob is from a, a mining area mm. in the North Country, yes. as, as are you, yes. uh, that, uh, where the mining went away. Mm. And, uh, but Bob also went away mm. and rarely, rarely comes back, whereas you... Uh, are, I'm still you know, famous for for so for <laughs> yes. so being there. So it's interesting that that your your lives are are so, you know, as two poets. Mm. His life is the life of the road. Although yes. I know you do tour. Ah yes, yes. I think it's interesting. I think I am unusual in that I've always been in the same place, and I've always been in this little village that has undergone so many changes. It is like where Bob Dylan comes from. It's, it was a mining town that then became an ex-mining town and is now trying to reinvent itself as something else and struggling with that. And that's why I like it, because it, it, it tries to articulate what it is. And you're right about the, the Black Hills of Dakota. I'd mm. forgotten that. It, that's, such a, that's, again, a phrase. What a great phrase. Yes, you see, I'm sure he's song. quoting that song. Yeah, I think he, he says, is. He is, because... You know, heading for the Black Hills, the Black yeah. Hills of Dakota, mm. which I guess is sort of... Because it's a... She's riding, isn't she riding mm. in a kind of a, a wagon? Yes, and yeah. she just... It's a big old song saying how great mm. the Black Hills are. And what that, what that taught me was the power of repetition. Take me back to the Black Hills, the Black Hills of Dakota. And sometimes when you're in these writing workshops, people go, don't repeat stuff. Don't repeat stuff. Huh. Don't repeat. And you go, look, repeat stuff. There's that great <laughs> poem by Ted Berrigan. Is it Ted Berrigan? Uh, Nothing in that drawer? I think it's Ted Berrigan. He's a, he's a New York poet. It's oh. called Nothing in that drawer. It's the same line 17 times. It's brilliant. Nothing in that drawer. Nothing in that drawer. <laughs> nothing in that drawer. Nothing in that drawer. And you go... What's that about? And then you go, there's nothing in that drawer. And it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like waiting for God or something. It's a fantastic piece. And to me, repetition. And that's why, you know, one more cup of coffee before I go. One more cup of coffee repeated to the valley below. Mm-hmm. You know, one more cup of coffee for the road. He could have just gone, one more cup of coffee for the road to the valley below. He could have done that. But the mm-hmm. repetition of one more cup of coffee, what does it do? It kind of, it underlines that phrase. The repetition lands it in your head a bit more. Mm-hmm. And that's why, take me back to the Black Hills, I know it's not his song, but take me back mm. to the Black Hills, the Black Hills of Dakota. So re- repeating the Black Hills, you go back to the Black Hills, you're there, take me back, so that the line itself does it, take me back to the Black Hills, oh, no, the line will do it as well for you, with the mm. Black Hills of Dakota. Mm. And it was one of my dad's favourite songs. He would sing that in his beautiful tenor voice, when we were washing up, take me back to the Black Hills. I should have had the boldness at that time to go, Dad, 
that's quite a good song. It's not as good as Lay, Lady, Lay. We could have had a kind of Well, it'd be good if you could, off. when you write your poem, you can incorporate both of them. I will. I certainly will. I will. Yes, that'll, that'll be something. We could be, I could see it now as a kind of performance piece. This will be playing my dad. Something like that. Then my brother over here. Like, doing in the Christian bit. Yeah, it's like a kind of triptych. Yes, you can all be, and there's a sink, a sink has to be involved. Yes, that's right, there'll be a sink, and then my mother over there just going, I wish you would just get washed. Boys, come on, (laughs) calm down. (laughs) I remember, I listened to your Desert Island disc the other day, and uh, you you referred to yourself as uh, sentimental, and you said most of the songs were sentimental choices, which I thought was great, because to me, when I listen to Desert Island disc, which I Mm. do a lot... People sometimes choose them for almost mathematical reasons. Like, I decided that I would choose this song, and they don't seem to have any connection to them. Mm. And that's the thing I loved about yours. Well, I think that they, people often, I think when people on Desert Island Discs, they go, right, I better pretend that I like classical music. Yeah, exactly. I better pretend that I like a bit of serialism. I better pretend this. And I think what songs do for me, what what great songs do for me, is they make me cry and they make me Mm. laugh, and that's Mm. what you want. Mm. And it's, it's the old, the power to cheat music and all that, but that's what something like Lay Lady Lay or One More Cup of Coffee, I listened to that again recently, thinking about this podcast. Mm. And I must have been feeling that way out, as my wife says, but I felt tears coming to my eyes. Mm. And you think, that's silly. I've heard this song a million times, and yet the combination of the voice, Before I Go to the Valley Below, you know, that sentimentality is one way of looking at it, isn't it? And it's like... There should be a word beyond sentimentality. Yeah, sentimentality sort of, I think, can be misinterpreted as mm. something cheap. Yes. But and what and you mean end, is, is emotion. I think it is. It's, it's, it's raw emotion that's powerful, you know, and, and, and that's where someone like Dylan can affect me greatly. You know, some of his early protest songs, things like Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands would speak to you. In a way, you couldn't quite understand. They would make you... On the way here, when I got the train down from Doncaster... In the cafe on the station, they were playing Up the Junction by Squeeze. Oh, yeah. I was again, I, I am a very, I'm a teary man, unlike my dad. But just that, me and this girl from Clapham uh, on the window, and you think, gosh, what power, what power in song. Maybe that's what song can do that poetry can't. Mm. You know, if it were Desert Island Disc and you chose some poems that made you think and made you, poems can make you cry, but not in the way that a song can. Mm, mm. Not in the way that a song can just lift you. And at the same time, make you want to weep, in the same way that I, the two things that can do it for me are songs and sport. Sport does it for me. Mm. Um, I was lucky enough to be at the Headingley Test when England won against all the odds, mm. when we managed to, when Stokes managed to stay in and Jack Leach managed to score one and at the end of every over he'd take his glasses off and wipe them. I didn't, what, I didn't watch. And I had my head in my hands, and my son-in-law was with me, kept picking me up by the collar and lifting me and saying, you must watch this, this is history. And as it's happening, I'm thinking, this is like listening to a song. This is what songs and sport can do that for me. I often think about the fact that Paul Auster, the great novelist, yeah. is a big baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And one day as I want to... That's right, and yeah. I, I want to get, get Paul Auster and me together sometime, and, and we'll do something where we, he talks about baseball and I talk about cricket. And maybe that's the thing with Bob Dylan as a baseball fan. What sport can do is, in the same way a song can, it can, it can nudge you towards the sublime in a kind of way that's sentimental... Because it was sentimental watching that game, you know, and, mm. and you're thinking, oh, this is fantastic, and you're there mm. for the moment, mm. and the way that song can be there for the moment. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe maybe that's what 
maybe that's what the poets love of Bob Dylan and sport. That's where they meet, is in this idea of the kind of the transcendent sentimental, that somehow at the moment of a chord hitting you like it's hit you before so many times, mm. and at the moment of somebody hitting a six out of the ground, something triggers in your brain that's nowhere near language mm. and is nowhere near art and is somewhere that makes you go, God, I've got to get my anky out. You do that, and, and mm. that's what he does so well. And that's why I don't want to examine him too much. Maybe that's why I don't want to look at the later one, because I want to remember, like the fact that when I was a kid, I used to love reading Rupert annuals. Rupert was my thing when I was uh -huh. a kid. And also Urwulli and the Bruins, these fantastic characters from the Scots newspaper, because my dad used to get them. Mm. And as an older man, people have bought me these, and I thought, I can't look at them. Mm. I can't look at them. Maybe that's what it is. <clears throat> the thing is about the, the, say, when we say the Neurobob, that's Bob mm. of the last 20 years. Yes. Um, it's almost like a different genre. So should I go into him then? I, I really would recommend, rather than go into the whole thing, yes. I'd recommend the album Love and Theft. Right. Because I think... Every song is a winner, mm -hmm. and you'll you'll think almost who is this guy? Like oh, the Bob Dylan true. on the cover. You'll th I don't know if you've seen the yes, cover. I've seen the cover, right? Yeah, we, yeah. I remember when I saw that cover, I thought, "Who is this <laughs> guy?" <laughs> this guy? <laughs> He's completely reinvented himself again. Yeah. So it's it's worth it. Mm -hmm. But but going back to the baseball and cricket thing, I think mm. I wonder if one of the things I, you described the, the the you know the ball on bat, which mm -hmm. is exactly the same in in baseball. Maybe, yes. maybe baseball comes from cricket. I don't yeah. know. But there is. Uh, baseball is not is the closest American or North American sport to mm. cricket because, yes. you know, you you have a nice time. You sit there, you eat, you chat, you <laughs> you you look at your phone, you read a magazine, mm -hmm. and then then there's that sound, yes. and then everybody, all the fifty thousand people that are there, are there together yes. at that yeah. moment, yeah. and in in baseball anyway. You can actually watch the ball, even if you've mm -hmm. been, you know, sitting there yes. uh, checking the news on your phone. Yeah. You can watch the ball, and you're and you're having this sort of transcendent moment. I wonder if Bob, you know, if that's the reason he enjoys baseball. It's because he's he's all about moments. He is. That's that's very true. I hadn't thought of that before, but that's what he does. He, he a moment will will be there in a song. He'll describe a moment again, like in one more cup of coffee. There she is mm. in the bed. Mm. That's what that's what cricket and that's what baseball are about. That moment when, especially in cricket, the batsman is facing the ball and so many things can happen. The ball is coming towards you at 100 miles an hour, just like the moment is coming towards you, just like the song is coming towards you, just like you're enveloped by this song. And maybe you're kind of, like you said, you're half listening to the song. It's on the radio. You're half listening to it. You're thinking about something else. You should be doing the ironing. <laughs> and suddenly he hits the ball or the ball hits the wicket and then the song, the song just... Ex yes, you're right, that's what it is. And that's why I love sport so much, because you go and see a film, you can often guess the end. And you go and see a play, you can guess the end. You're enjoying the play, but you think, well, that's what's going to happen. With a sporting occasion, you've got no idea what's going to happen. And that's why I love sport, and that's why I love Bob Dylan's songs so much, because really, you hear them so many times, but uh, there'll always be a surprise around the corner. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the old Riley suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. What good am I then to others and me if I've had every chance and yet still fail to see? If my hands are tied, 
Must I not wonder within who tied them and why and where must I have been?